Hello everybody and welcome back to the Get Me Started podcast. My name is Thea and I'm the host of the show. Before we begin today, I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, who are the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Indigenous persons listening today. Sovereignty was never ceded and this land was, is and always will be traditional Aboriginal land. I'd encourage my listeners to learn more about the land on which they live, work and socialise on and to do their best to pay respects to the traditional owners however they can in their day-to-day lives. Today we have a very interesting special episode with the lovely Claire Marion. Hello, how are you going? I'm good, thank you Thea. How are you? I'm good. I just realised, is it Claire Marion or Claire Tucker Morrison? Claire Tucker Morrison. Well, who, where did I get Marion from? From my Facebook. Oh, there we go. Changed my name so that employers can't find me. And now I'm Thea Beatrice online instead of Thea Stevenson. Exactly. So we're all in the same boat there. We're all trying to hide our true identities. <laughs> from the legal profession, which is it's actually... actually quite pertinent to what we're talking about today. It is. So today's episode, we haven't even named it yet because we... We're too keen to get on the mic and this is something that Claire and I talk about endlessly in our own just personal conversations and that's what makes this episode a bit different. So instead of it being my traditional sort of a guest episode where the guest is bringing a new topic that maybe I don't know as much about either, this is kind of like a mash between the solo episodes where it's something that I'm super, super passionate about and super involved with and then bringing on another guest who's also super passionate and super involved in this topic And we're going to be discussing sexual harassment within the legal profession. Uh, Claire and I are both law students. We both want to become lawyers one day. And we both also are in positions of student leadership. And we do a lot of advocacy work in our personal and our semi-professional lives around this issue of sexual harassment and, you know, mistreatment in the workplace of a sexual nature. So, there's so much. We, we've given ourselves a time limit. We've put ourselves on a tight schedule because otherwise this could be a five-hour episode and we probably will have a part two or there's going to be more episodes on this kind of topic in the future as well. So, yeah, welcome, Claire. Do you want to... Thank you, Thea. I very much appreciate the introduction and I think this is definitely, as we've agreed, something that we could spend five hours discussing or even longer if we're not careful. So it's good we've got a time limit. Yeah. But I'm so happy to be here today and I think it's such an important conversation that we've started to have with our peers and our professional friends. But I think it's one of those things that needs to have more exposure because to solve the issues and to solve the stigma and the nuance problems, we need to start conversations. And that's so important. Yeah, 100%. And I've only known Claire, you know, what, less than a year, which is kind of crazy because it definitely doesn't feel like that. But even in the short amount of time that I've known Claire, she's an incredibly passionate advocate in this space. And really, I feel like you you walk the walk and you talk the talk and you live the idea of having challenging conversations and bringing up these topics, which do make people uncomfortable and which make ourselves uncomfortable at time when you're addressing your own biases and, you know, issues in the way we behave. But Claire is incredibly passionate she's a beautiful soul she cares very deeply about her friends and her fellow humans and commits a lot of time to that so I'm just I feel very lucky that I've been able to find sort of a kindred spirit in multiple ways but especially in this space yeah that is such a beautiful introduction to me (laughs) I feel so honored and I feel exactly the same about you I think to be in a space where you do have such impassioned people around you it definitely gives you the forum 
to have these discussions. And that's something that I'm feeling very empowered about at the moment is in the last six months, the growth, the personal growth that I've undergone has been immense. Even the unwinding of a lot of internalized bias, particularly in the realms of sexism, misogyny that I didn't even realize that I had. And it's with people like you that I can unlearn problematic behaviors and grow more. Yeah. Um, so let's get into it. Let's go. Absolutely. Let's go. What about this topic gets you started? <laughs> oh my goodness. How am I going to answer this question in the time allocated to me? I was I like, Claire know. just goes on a monologue and I just don't talk for the rest <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah. This topic is particularly important to me for a number of reasons. To start on a more micro level, personal level, I am a law student and I have worked in the legal profession now for about three years and I have experienced both indirect and direct discrimination when it comes to sex. It's something that has really, really impacted me in my personal life and has definitely made me want to make a change and that comes from a very, very deep personal place and honestly a place that I haven't fully delved into yet I think the the kind of pain that's come out of those sorts of discriminatory experiences and then I guess on a more macro level um secondary to the first point is it's an issue that affects every single woman on a macro level there is not one female friend that I have in the legal profession but also outside of the legal profession that I've had conversations with that has not experienced these things. And it can be in the workplace. It can be in the family life. It can be in friendships. It's everywhere. Um, And because it's so pervasive, I think it's one of those things that really does get me started because I think, as I said before, we have to start these conversations. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think as well that that point about like every woman that we know having some experience in this space, something that I've like had conversations maybe with women who sort of don't feel like they've maybe experienced like a really direct form of harassment or like assault or something more serious, which they can put their finger on. But then the question that I always have for them is like, yes, but how do you carry yourself in X, Y, and Z scenario? Like what are you doing about your behaviors that you just know inherently, you know, men or more privileged people, depending on what the space is, don't have to do to protect themselves, to avoid becoming like part of the statistic essentially that it's one in three women have been assaulted like what like you know there's always something so even if it's not that like you can sit there and point to oh on x date at x time x person did this to me we are all moderating ourselves so constantly to avoid that potential and that is so limiting to just being able to live freely and without like discomfort um, and it just, it, it does inherently change the way women navigate themselves in, in the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And I think two points on what you've just said. The first thing is this issue and the way that discrimination based on sex manifests itself is sometimes so nuanced. So I think the reason why firstly, a lot of women and a lot of people in general don't think that they've experienced it or feel as if they haven't is probably because If they have, it has been nuanced. And there are two parts to that. The first part is when you're experiencing more indirect nuanced discrimination, you end up spending a lot of time thinking about whether the way you're feeling about it is actually reasonable. So you might leave an encounter that was really uncomfortable for yourself 
wondering whether it's reasonable that you feel the way you do. And that's the problem with nuanced sexism. And that is certainly something when we're talking about the legal profession that I know I've experienced and a lot of my friends and colleagues have experienced too. And I think that the nuance of it makes it, again, a really difficult issue to talk about because it's also very subjective. And because these behaviours are very learned and very ingrained, when you're experiencing them, one person's joke can be another person's complete detriment and send them into a total spiral. And I know that's happened to me before or happened to my friends before is we've been in these situations where we're in a conversation and somebody makes a comment and they're laughing, but you have this pit in your stomach thinking, I feel really uncomfortable about what was just said, but I feel like I can't say anything because it was a joke or it was framed in humor. And if I say something, how unreasonable of me to speak up. Mm. And it's that, it's that power dynamic as well, obviously, like, I think the reason like where we were framing this this episode around like the legal profession more specifically is because obviously like sexual assault and harassment like on a big scale there's just so much there's so much to it there's so many elements you can go into but when it comes down to like the legal profession it's this multifaceted thing of both being the profession that we are ultimately looking to enter into and so we obviously care about the culture and the environment there and understanding in that that we will be juniors and it can be difficult to be as forthright and as committed to your perspectives and activism when you are at an inherent power imbalance you know because you're junior and you're starting out and like how do you navigate that but the other side of it for me and part of why I care so much about the legal profession and like how bad this issue can be in that environment is the fact that I think people forget how privileged we are to have access to the kind of education that affords us the ability to become a lawyer and to sit in that position of social power and prestige, you know, of the fact that being a lawyer is a very respected profession. And we are taught from day one and everyone knows that the law is an incredibly nuanced, very, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping. There's a lot of issues around access to justice and understanding the language and being able to interpret and navigate statute and, you know, the system in and of itself. And I think when you're in that space all the time and when you're surrounded by people that have various forms of privilege in terms of like economic privilege and access to education and access to future opportunities, you forget the fact that there are a lot of people in society and in the world who are reliant on us to help them navigate this system. We have to be leaders for people who are trying to better their lives or trying to address a wrong in their own life who don't have that kind of access and that kind of privilege. And so when you're then sitting there saying some of the highest legal professionals in the country are being accused of incredibly serious forms of sexual misconduct, how the hell are people supposed to trust that the individuals navigating this incredibly complex, really personal system for them are good and proper people who deserve to be trusted, who deserve to take on your claim and lead you through a series of really, what can be a really convoluted area of the world. You know, law underpins all of society. And I don't want to overstate our importance, but I also think that we sort of like brush it off a lot. And it's like, actually, no, it's the same way you would want to trust that your doctor is caring and compassionate towards you, you need to be able to trust that your lawyer is respectful and self-aware and connected to like human experience so that you can know that 
it's going to be a positive journey through it. And I just, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth when I think about the public image of the legal profession and how negative it is and how much wrong is being done by people within what is supposed to be, you know, a group of people who really do uphold the law because that's our fucking job. Like we are lawyers. Like it's, it's inherent to what we're supposed to do and people aren't doing it. I completely agree with that. And I think that betrayal has been something that I've had to really personally reconcile with in the last few months, particularly after allegations of Christian Porter and allegations against high ranking government officials and high court judges and all of these people who are meant to be the highest echelon of our society and these amazing, learned, intelligent, respected members. If there are role models and they are the ones that are perpetrating these crimes how do we expect anybody else to not follow in their footsteps if that's the role models that we're that we're we're growing up with and particularly as law students when we hear about these people that have allegedly or and have committed these crimes I find using the word allegedly so difficult that's actually another point just because I feel like it invalidates a lot of victims experiences I always really shy away from using the term and I think it's a term that being a law student you you kind of feel like you have to say it because you're very black and white on these issues unless there's been a crime that's been proven in court and they've been found guilty you steer towards saying allegedly but for some reason to me that makes a victim spirit experience really invalid because we know that most victims do tell the truth And for me to then say allegedly, I just feel is a lot more clinical and I don't want to use that word. So I'm not going to use that word, but I think something that I found really difficult and what's led me to have this personal crisis recently is as law students, we read, you know, 70, 80 page judgments of cases for our subjects. And when I am reading a judgment and I see a high court justice's name, who's extremely learned that I know has committed these crimes. I'm sort of thinking, how are these people allowed to be in positions of power where they can make judgments about other people's lives, but have literally no moral compass of their own and profess to be these very outstanding, upstanding citizens with these high ethical codes of conduct. And they're actually not being held accountable. And we're seeing that in government right now, that no one's being held accountable at all. And it infuriates me. And it really, as a young female entering this profession, it makes me feel incredibly jaded and incredibly cynical because if this is an issue that I'm going to have to be dealing with for the rest of my life and we're, we're in patriarchal systems of power, so I know that if I go into the bar and I become a barrister, I'm going to be one of the 11% of female barristers. That, you know, 89% of men, how many of them might engage in sexual misconduct and it's just going to be so difficult for me if I have to turn a blind eye? I feel like that's very, very prevalent as well as the concept of turning a blind eye because these conversations can be really, really uncomfortable And so it's easier for people to just sit in the comfortable and to stay stagnant and to not want to break the glass ceiling for risk of shaking up the system. And I actually want to ask you, you know, when we were talking about this before we were recording, we were saying how 
it's actually, we're both in a really difficult position because sharing our own personal anecdotes actually puts us at risk, or at least we feel that we're at risk. I was actually having a conversation with somebody yesterday and I was saying, I feel as if, if I bring my personal anecdotes into this, it makes me sound jaded and bitter and nobody trusts a woman scorned. You know what I mean? It makes it like we have a vendetta and that we're not being practical. We're not being rational, which is, you know, always a claim as particularly made against women in these kinds of situations that you're being irrational. You're being hysterical about something. And when you admit that you have deeply personal experiences in this space, yet people use it to undercut you. But the irony of that, and it kind of also goes to what you're talking about with the alleged element, which I kind of want to circle back to in a second. The irony of saying that like you having personal experience in some way makes what you're trying to say or advocate for in this space lesser is just hysterical to me because it is the only space really where having personal experience seems to take away from your ability to speak publicly about it and to have an opinion like you know you you've you want to write a book about mount everest people are going to trust you more if you've been to mount everest if i want to talk about sexual harassment in the legal profession why can't i acknowledge that i'm a survivor because i can't and i don't often and you know i did a public talk recently which was amazing (laughs) i must say i was there i watched it it was great with justice kenneth hayne of the high court and I didn't, in that instance, openly acknowledge that I was a survivor. And people picked up on it, and there was definitely people afterwards, the way that they were commenting to me, I could tell that people could tell. Like, you know, Absolutely. I, you don't speak about those things with that kind of language and saying I and we if you aren't connected to it. But I didn't, I very consciously didn't do that because I knew that it would invalidate the things that I was trying to say. And it also wasn't about me in that instance. But it's just so funny that we have to play this tiptoe because in in any other space, if you have experienced whatever it is you were talking about, people see that as a beneficial thing. And this takes me back to the alleged point because I agree with everything you said there. And something that I took me a long time to come to this and also for myself, you know, personally, yeah, and in my journey dealing with my own experiences, I think... I am obviously a big believer in the justice system and I do believe in law and the systems that we have in place because if I didn't, I'd be banging my head against a wall every single day because this is the profession that I've chosen. And I believe in innocent until proven guilty to an extent or like, you know, all of those kinds of things and that, you know, the the judgments of a court do say something about someone's guilt or innocence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that. I can back that in. I can understand that. But particularly in this space, and I think it does apply to other spaces as well, but particularly in this space... I think that there needs to be an understanding that not guilty doesn't always mean innocent. Oh, that is such a good point. It means not guilty in the eyes of the law. It means the law is not going to take a stand here and pass down a judgment and pass down, you know, a sentence of some form. It does not mean that for the individual who experienced the act or who went through that traumatic experience, it does not mean that their experience was not traumatic or that it wasn't okay or that it wasn't good. And it doesn't also mean then on the flip side that we can continue to berate people who have been accused of these things if they are found innocent in the eyes of the law. But I, it's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like sure. if you're found innocent in the eyes of the law, I respect that and I respect that that individual then although it pains me at times does deserve to be given some level of privacy or like ability to live 
that life and be seen as not guilty in the eyes of the law. But at the same time, it does not inherently mean that what happened wasn't wrong or that what happened shouldn't be allowed. And it doesn't mean that the individual who brought the the, the claim or the case is in any way less correct in how they felt, in what they experienced, in how they feel about that situation. And it's just something as well because of the way in which we know institutions deal with sexual harassment you just really in this instance can't see them as the same thing. In an instance of murder, say, someone is found not guilty, it may be more clear that they are then innocent in the same sentence, you know. But when we know that the system is not set up to help survivors, that the system is fundamentally flawed through precedent and patriarchal norms in law and the very subsistence of the fact that law was and is created for wealthy white men because that's who created our laws and that is who historically has upheld them you cannot then say that being found not guilty of a crime of sexual assault is the same as being innocent because everyone people within the legal profession people outside the legal profession acknowledge that the law does not deal with sexual assault properly and it doesn't it doesn't pass down enough sentences of guilt because of the convoluted nature of the crime and the convoluted nature of the precedents that have been set in the past when the world was not so able to accept that women were telling the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think you've really touched on the point of legality and morality there. And we're not going to get into that because otherwise you really will be here for five hours. But I think it's really hard when the general public or the lay people's And that's not to invalidate anybody here that's listening that isn't a law student. I don't mean that as an insult at all. I just more mean when talking about legal institution and the way that a court process works or rules of evidence, for example, if somebody is found not guilty and that's sent out to the public, the judgment's delivered and they're labelled as not guilty, I think a lot of people will then sort of forget about it and be like, that's okay, they've been found not guilty, they must not be guilty of any crime. But when you know that the slightest way that the police handle a claim could actually alter the entire course of the proceeding, or if somebody fails to abide by a rule of evidence, then the whole proceeding can be thrown out, or there's all these procedural rules that can actually negate the way that a process is run, I think that it does make it really hard And I think we do need to have a distinction or maybe some, I don't know, alternate forum of handling sexual assault matters where when somebody is found not guilty, there is still support for the victim. I read this amazing book and I really want to recommend it to everybody listening, Eggshell Skull. I'm not sure if you've read it. So the basic premise in criminal law, and I hopefully I get this right, (laughs) is that in terms of a one punch rule, for example, if you king hit somebody and they have a thinner skull than the average human and you king hit them and they fall over and they crack their skull and had it been a person with a regularly shaped skull, they wouldn't have died or they wouldn't have had serious injury. But just because they've got a thinner skull, they have that injury does not mean that you are then, your crime is any lesser. And I think that was a probably quite convoluted explanation but this book is about this uh female judge's associate who goes on circuit have you read it 
So it's by Brie Lee. And I actually haven't read it because the time when I tried to read it, I was going through a process of recovery from my own circumstance and it just wasn't an appropriate time for me to engage with that sure. literature but it's a well-known book in legal circles um yeah but Brie and she actually has a new book out I'm plugging her because I love her she's great um, she's great um she's got a new book out at the moment called who gets to be smart which oh amazing amazing have you read that one no it just came out last week anyway back to yeah well, she's a she's a judge's associate she was a judge's associate and she went on circuit so she was traveling around to all of these regional courts with this male judge and he was amazing and very very supportive but she had actually undergone she had actually experienced her own sexual assault when she was younger as a child and it really brought up all of the trauma and it's this amazing sort of personal anecdote but also almost out of body thing where she's dealing with other people's sexual assaults and looking at how the court manages sexual assault claims and the fury and the rage and the hurt that she experiences as a result of seeing victims not supported by the system is heartbreaking. But when you get to the end of the story and not going to ruin it, it's also incredibly empowering and her strength through that all is amazing. But I do think that that book really reiterates the point that you were trying to get across about this whole not guilty, guilty scenario and how the minute that somebody gets labeled with either of those, then they're sort of either absolved or condemned. Mm. And I think I, this year was doing for in first semester, gender and the law media defamation and privacy and ethics. And they were three really interesting subjects to do because in gender and the law, I learned all about feminist theory and how, as you were saying before, the patriarchal institution that is not just the legal system, but honestly, most systems of power in our world or all systems of power in our world. And when you have a system of power that's entirely dominated by men and everyone in charge is men, it's so interesting to look at how feminist theory intertwines with that and how women are seen as less credible witnesses because they might be hysterical or they're probably going to be making it up. I just really think that those patriarchal institutions are so upheld by the legal system even still. And as a young law student and as an aspiring lawyer, I want to feel like I'm going into an industry where I will be able to be equal to my male counterparts. And it's so frustrating when you look back in history and you have to acknowledge as a woman how far we've come. We have voting rights. We have all these amazing privileges that we never used to have. But to me, they really are the bare minimum. And I don't just want to have the bare minimum. I want to be equal. I want to be powerful. I want to be seen as strong. And right now... I don't feel as if that's my path. And when you have victims that are still not being believed and I read these judgments of cases that have been judgments that have been handed down in the last few months where the judges are saying her story was less credible or she was hysterical or it sounded exaggerated. These are all these defamation cases that I've been reading lately where you have a powerful person like Craig McLaughlin or Jeffrey Rush an actor, somebody that's in the public spotlight and somebody brings a claim against them and the, they're not believed because they're a woman and they must be hysterical. I just find it so, so frustrating. And I think that's something that I wonder if we can flesh out today. How do we reconcile 
with that? How do we reconcile with the patriarchal institution that is our prospective career? I think that's, yeah, and I think that's the crux of what I feel like a lot of my thinking ends up coming back to is the sense that, like, law is based on precedent, which, you know, if if that's sort of, like, I know everyone knows, like, what that means in the sense of we've all heard it before, but I think coming into the law, I didn't maybe know to the fullest extent how much that affects what can get done because precedent is set by higher courts and when a higher court reasons through a scenario in a particular way it becomes binding on every court below it as to how instances of a similar nature have to be handled and dealt with and it's only when the facts or the arguments based around maybe another circumstance which seems similar but has a different sort of take on it where a different precedent can be set or it has to go on appeal to a higher court and the, the precedent can be changed there. But there's limits to that and it's a lengthy process and it's, you know, it does embed itself once something has been explored to a certain number of times to being really, really hard to navigate away, navigate away from and to like carve out new space and new understanding. And this is something that, yeah, we've said before, like sexual harassment has really struggled because, yeah, it's only sort of somewhat recent that we really view value in believing women and addressing this issue properly. But we've had decades of cases going through where it's been really upheld to very normative patriarchal standards. And so it's just pigeonholed it into this one really particular way of dealing with it. And I think this also goes to the fact that we know that people don't report sexual assault and sexual harassment. And We also know why. And we know why. And this is part of the why. And it's just so heartbreaking because I don't know what the exact statistics are, but like, you know, give me some, you know, give me some gray area on this, but it's something like, you know, one in seven sexual assaults will be reported to police. And then of that one in seven, one in three will get past like a preliminary stage. And then of that one in three will make it to trial. So you're getting down to like really small percentages here. And then it's like of that one in like five will actually get a guilty verdict, you know? And so then you're looking at like, you know, at such a small percentage of all the assaults that are actually happening in society, even getting before a judge or a, or a jury, and even then, even the possibility of there being a, an outcome which reflects the nature of what the victim has experienced is just so, so, so minute. And it just, it it's painful to watch because I know for myself and I know so many other people around me at law school come to law school and come to study the law in the hopes of you know making the world a better place it's that cheesy catchphrase but I also know a lot of people who making the world a better place for them is about addressing issues of sexual um like harassment even just like sex discrimination on a bigger picture scale misogyny and you get to your third year and you ask the same people that came in with those goals and those dreams if that's still there for them and it's not. Oh, my goodness. And and it's not just that it's not there for them. It's that people, in particularly women, begin to question if they even want to be in the profession at all. And I think this is a really problematic thing because how, again, do we, do we acknowledge and do we deal with personally and as a, a society the fact that the legal profession is very patriarchal and very hierarchical as well, which has a really big impact on that. When we are seeing, like, I am watching female peers 
navigate themselves away from this profession after becoming qualified because of the fact that they don't want to have to deal with that, which is so fair and so valid. But then again, we continue to have the issue that it's what, 60% or 70% of law graduates are women, but by the time we're 10 years into our career, it's 25% or something like that. And it's not just family factors. It's not just that people go off to have babies and, you know, that means people are taking time off and maybe they don't return. It's because we are not welcome. It's not made for us. And yet that is perpetuating the cycle because if we can't be in this space, if we can't exist, let alone, we're not even talking about all the other forms of intersectionality that exist here. Like, you know, Claire and I are both white women talking about this, which is, you know, problematic in and of itself. Because and we have so much privilege. We have so much privilege. We're both able-bodied. We both fit within some level of conventional beauty standard. Like, you know, all of those things. And, like, you know, we're not even talking about people with disabilities, people of race, people, like, of different races, sorry, people with different, like, even just coming from different institutions. We go to two of the best law schools in the country and so that exceptionally privileged exceptionally privileged and we are questioning if this space is for us absolutely and I think that was something that I touched on at the beginning how jaded and cynical I've become and I I really hate that because I'm I always strive to be a glass half full person I try and be positive but when I'm going into a profession that It just seems to keep hitting me with new obstacles and challenges. Not only is it conceptually challenging work, and as you said, we are exceptionally privileged. I am so lucky to have the education that I do. I'm so lucky to have the privilege that I do. And when we are also struggling, it's really, really difficult to think about everybody else and how how are they going to be able to navigate this. I think something I wanted to tell you, a bit of a story when you were talking about the police reporting before, I have an anecdote from one of my friends. She is an exceptional woman and has been very, very vocal on this issue in the last few months because she actually reported a rape a few years ago that happened when she was 15 to police. She reported it really recently. She's actually been studying law over in the UK and she reported it to Australian police and they concluded that they were not going to press charges because her testimony since she's become a law student has become more impassioned and she's she's changed her story because she's a law student and the way that they framed it was we're concerned about her testimony because of her legal training and the fact that a young woman who is speaking out about something that happened to them is told that because of their education, they are more hysterical or being more unreasonable. If anything, to me, that makes her more credible because she actually understands how the system works. And to be gaslit like that, it really, really infuriates me. And I'm so proud of her and so proud of who she is. I think the reporting rate that you were talking about before, there are so many people that don't feel like they can report. And that's why it annoys me so much when I'm having conversations with people and they say, well, why didn't you speak up about it? Why didn't you tell anyone? I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not going to be believed. And how devastating is that going to be to my own narrative and to my own internal identity if I try and speak about something that I'm really struggling to actually grapple with and I'm told that I'm lying? Or I'm told that because I've got a legal training, I'm 
not credible. How ridiculous. The fact that being educated... <laughs> like, it's, it's laughable. The fact that being an educated young woman makes you less credible. Like, that. That is what the patriarchy is thrives off. I can... Tr- I'm trying to think of a situation in which a young man being educated in something that they were trying to bring a claim about or defend themselves in would in any way take away from their ability to do so. I bet you, I just feel this in my bones and maybe I am jaded and cynical, but I think I'm right. If a young woman reported a sexual assault and then her abuser was a male law student, I think that that would give him an in. in- in like immeasurable benefit in the eyes of the law and the eyes of police and things like that as to the validity because like the we love we love to tout out the like you know the accolades when somebody is accused you know it's never you know it's never um harvey weinstein you know like abuser it's harvey weinstein you know executive producer owner of blah owner of accused of x against person you know the fact renowned producer yeah the fact that we know most people will know what instance i'm talking about when i say the stanford swimmer rape case absolutely and i have chanel miller know her name as her book asks you to chanel miller who is a phenomenal advocate in the sexual assault space who was the victim in that case nobody fucking knows her name and that's partly because she her identity was kept private for a long time but guess what her identity is no longer private and it's not the stanford swimmer brock turner rape case because fuck that he's the one that did this he's the one that gets to live his life being referred to as the stanford swimmer which is an incredibly prestigious title to be given absolutely and she's the one who She's no named. She's no named. And that was, you know, obviously that has to happen in the process. But, like, the thing is, she is named now. So learn it. Change it. Adapt. Like, And I think that's I think that's going to another really interesting po- point is just about the way that the media reports on these cases. I know I've seen so many articles that's been speaking about a man and using his full name. And then at the end of the sentence, it will say, and wife. It's just these really reductive terms used for women. And I totally understand what you were saying about the importance of keeping a victim's identity anonymous whilst the course of proceedings are occurring. And also if that victim chooses to remain anonymous, then we have to be victim centric and we also, we obviously have to respect their wishes. But when the Stanford swimmer is the accolades that come with that are immense and she is kept hidden. It, it just really enforces the point that we're trying to get across in this podcast of the pervasiveness of these patri- patriarchal institutions and just even like the patriarchal narrative. I really feel like I'm in a world of patriarchal narrative. Yeah, for sure. And something to do with the reporting as well, which I spoke about when I did that talk, but I just feel like it's worth saying in every single situation because since I've heard it, it has just, it just helped to clarify for me so accurately why it is that people do not report these things and why it is so difficult. And sometimes it does take years to articulate your experience. If you had to walk into a room right now and sit down at across the table from a friend, but probably more likely a stranger and describe in graphic 
second by second detail your last sexual encounter if you had sex with your partner last night, sit down across from a stranger at a table in a room that you've never been in before and walk them through a minute by minute, second by second recount in every instance of detail about how you felt, what was happening, who was there, every single every single detail about what was touched at what point and how you felt and who was aroused and what was going on. If you can sit there and tell a complete stranger that narrative with no qualms, with perfect articulation, and then repeat it 10 times to 10 different people and not change a single element of that story, then yeah, maybe you have the right to say, but why didn't they report it? But I doubt. I couldn't do that. I could not even sit across from Claire last night and tell her about my most recent sexual encounter in graphic detail. Sure. And I'm friends with her and we talk about those kinds of things. So why... Why do we expect people who have gone through a traumatic experience to be able to do that literally the second the penny drops? And why are we expecting people to even be able to identify that a sexual encounter has been negative or traumatic or detrimental to them when we aren't taught what good sex is and what healthy, respectful sex is and what those boundaries look like? We have to learn and unlearn through our own experiences what actually a healthy and respectful sexual dynamic is. And I know that that comes out for a lot of people like, oh, but was it just bad sex? Was it just a bad encounter? Do you just regret it? Do you just regret it? It wasn't what you wanted. It's like, yeah, well, okay, sure. Maybe there are times when that is a factor to consider. But why is the onus being put on these people who are going through these situations when we don't have a conversation and a narrative around what positive, healthy sexual dynamics look like, what power dynamics in sex can look like and how to safely and purposefully navigate that. And why are we expecting people who've gone through traumatic events to sit down and recount minute-by-minute detail of those things in the moment that happens? You would not ask a victim of a car crash to get up the next morning and sit across from you at the table and tell you in minute-to-minute detail exactly what happened and how they now feel after it. You wouldn't expect it. So why the hell do we put that onus on people in these situations? I think two points on that also. Not only are you sitting across from a stranger and recounting to them your most recent sexual encounter, you're also navigating a really immensely traumatic experience. But also oftentimes I've heard when people have tried to report this stuff, they've had somebody sitting across from them saying, are you sure? Are you sure that that's what happened? So if you're being constantly questioned, maybe there is going to be a shred of doubt that creeps into your mind about what did happen. And that is so, so, so difficult. I think another thing to share a personal anecdote for myself is with my own sexual assault, it took me eight years to actually talk about it. Took me three. A long time. A long time. Not to talk about it, to actually fully comprehend that what I had gone through was sexual assault. And to use the words, not just to say, like, you, I knew for myself for a long time that it wasn't right or it wasn't good, but to use the actual terminology is big. There's it takes a lot. And I wish that that wasn't the case. I want to re-emphasise the fact that I think it's important that all victims speak about their experience when they are ready. But at the same time, why is it so hard for us as women to label what we've gone through? It's because we're not seen as credible. And if we say 
did we, we feel as if we got sexually assaulted or we were sexually assaulted or we were raped, the amount of people that are going to look at us, is she sure? Is that really what happened? It was behind closed doors. Did she just regret it? All of those things. And I think remembering that these traumatic conversations are really, really difficult. But as somebody that I identify as quite confident and, you know, somewhat literate on these issues, I obviously have a long way to go. And as you said, experiences of people that have had to deal with intersectional issues and intersectional discrimination of things that I don't have lived experience in. I just, I'm not sure how we can expect those people to speak up. And I think we really need to be just a message to all of our listeners today. I really want you to go away and think about how you view these topics. And particularly, it can be a conversation with yourself in your head. It really can. If you think about one of your close female friends coming to you and disclosing something that's quite traumatic to them, disclosing that they, they've had a sexual assault or they've been harassed or catcalled or something. If there is a shred of doubt in your mind, I want you to own that. I want you to investigate it. I want you to understand that what you're experiencing is your own unconscious bias. And that's actually your own internalized sexism that is doubting the person that's coming to you. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it can be a really confronting thing to do is actually acknowledge the problematic narrative in your mind. And it's really something that I've done in the last year. I really think it's taken me a lot to unlearn those behaviors. Even something as simple as being in the room with my boyfriend or a man and going to automatically clean their plates for them. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I look at that as me conforming to my gender roles. And I really want to make it clear that, you know, obviously when you're in those situations, there's a difference between conforming to a gender role and just being polite and doing an act of service or showing love. But I really try and be extremely self-aware in those situations now. And I think, why am I doing this? Am I doing it because I think that I need to provide for this person or I need to care for this person? Or am I doing it because, you know, it's my turn and it's, it's what I'm going to do this week. So yeah, I just think having those internal conversations with yourself and just being a little bit more deliberate about the way you think about encounters with people, it's exhausting. And I know both of us, they are, have had periods of immense burnout to do with this issue, dealing with our own personal scenarios and situations of misogyny and sexism and discrimination. And we've had to sit with a lot of uncomfortable thoughts as well and a lot of uncomfortable experiences. So I just encourage everybody else to do it, but do keep in mind that it can be pretty exhausting. I know when I was posting on my Instagram a lot about these issues, uh, I was trying to start conversations and I really wanted to be an advocate and to stand up for a lot of my friends. During that time, I had probably about 30 women message me on my social media accounts and disclose instances of sexual harassment and rape and confide in me because they saw me as an ally. And that took an immense emotional toll because I'm not trained in this, but I also do want to be a strong voice, but I definitely crumbled behind the scenes. I, I really did. So 
yeah, make sure you have those conversations with yourself, but also, and, and have those conversations with your peers, but also do remember to take care of yourselves as well, because this content is heavy and we probably should have put a disclaimer in at the start. Um, this, this content is very, very heavy, but it's super important. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think this is good. This is bringing us back around maybe to like more specifically like within the legal profession in and of itself. Like we said at the beginning, like, you know, we're sort of talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment quite generally, but remember that we're coming at this from a perspective of like, as in within the legal profession, because that's our current lived experience and what we wanted to like underline this conversation with. And so like there are elements of things that we're not going into because it's not as pertinent in this instance. But I think, you know, Claire and I both are yeah, student leaders in our universities and this last year, there's been a lot in, yeah, the legal and like, you know, professional space in government and things like that, which is connected to the law, obviously, as well. And then there's been a lot within our own institutions where we're grappling with the fact that there's so much change and there's progress and all of those things. But ultimately, you know, our peers will one day be these people. And yeah, you do look around the room and you think, who? Who is going to be a victim? Who is going to be a perpetrator? Who is going to do the right thing by the law? Who is going to create change? Who is going to resist change? Like these people are the next generation of the people currently doing all of this stuff in the public eye. And it it is a heavy burden to carry for everyone. And I think I definitely have gone through some big cycles this year where this kind of issue when you're trying to be an advocate or you're trying to help people carry so much more risk than other forms of assistance you can offer around very different topics, particularly within the legal space, right? You know, if you're trying to help someone with their education or to coordinate a timetable for themselves that is more suited because of certain needs and whatever, yes, there's risk in it not working out and there's risk in mismanaging it in some way because, you know, you care about those people and everything like that. But because this topic is so fraught and has so much personal investment in it and so many institutions and individuals let survivors down in this space when you become someone who is getting told about these kinds of circumstances you've got people in your inbox you know opening up to you and you want to be there to support them and you want to be there to support them and you've put yourself out there as someone who is there to support them and someone who's trying to create change every single step carries a lot of weight because at the end of the day you're just a person as well but fucking something up here (laughs) is a lot riskier than when you're trying to help people in other spaces as well and it's it's a really hard learning curve because sometimes the learning curve is at the detriment of someone who is already in an immensely vulnerable position and having to acknowledge and stay true to the fact that it isn't going to be necessarily handled perfectly because that's just not the nature of things. But then having to wear that personally and having to be okay in yourself and then layer on top of that the fact that we're young women who have our own experiences in this space. And it's immensely triggering. It's immensely triggering. And then layer on top of that that we are still trying to enter this profession and be respected. And put our best foot forward. And put our best foot forward and not be prejudged by the views that we are expressing, you know, in different platforms. And then put another layer on top of that of the comprehension that 
not everyone actually knows anything about this space. Like there's a lot of people that I've come across in the last year where it's really made me have to recognize that, you know, echo chambers exist. Obviously, oh, we echo know chambers this. are so important to acknowledge though as well. And like, you know, Claire and I will spend an evening together and we're talking about this and we're having these, you know, complex nuanced conversations, but other people don't even understand what sexual harassment is or that it's even an issue. They don't even know that it's a problem in the legal profession, full stop, let alone the complexities of dealing with it and grappling with it and all of this stuff. And you come across those individuals when you're trying to create change and it's confusing and it's heartbreaking. And then at some point as well, it has to not be the ultimate priority in your day, but in not making it the ultimate priority in your day, you feel like you're harming people. Absolutely. And I've had people say to me before, oh yeah, I do acknowledge that I've been discriminated against based on my sex, but it's honestly too exhausting for me to confront it. So I'm just going to deal. I'm just going to deal with it. And that's heartbreaking to me that it's just accepted. You just have to kind of take it in your stride. I actually met quite a senior legal professional the other night and we were, my friend and I were speaking to them about this issue and our own personal experiences in, in this forum. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, I can't believe that this is still going on. This is a senior, senior legal figure. She looked at me and she said, I cannot believe that you are still going through this, that this is, these are still issues that are prevalent and they are. And it's just something that we do have to kind of take in our stride. I've really been trying to encourage a lot of my peer groups to have these conversations and I will actively start these conversations with my peer groups. I think if you're somebody that doesn't know much about these issues, it's just really important to actually sit down with somebody and say, hey, I don't really know much about this issue. Let's have a chat about it. And this brings me to another point, I think, particularly when it comes to the co- the topic of sexism, when you're speaking about men and women. And obviously there's non-binary people as well that are, that are involved in these conversations, I think. But in the context of men and women, particularly, when you have a lot of men that are perpetrators, the overwhelming majority of men that are perpetrators and women that are victims, men can feel really isolated and really worried and scared to speak up about these topics. When speaking to men, I've had them say to me, well, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. And I really would encourage people. I know we've spoken about how exhausting it can be in our inboxes if you do contact us. And I also don't think that women should be in the place of educators and should have to carry the burden of educating their male counterparts or educating the people around them. You now have the resources. If you've listened to this whole podcast, you have enough stuff to go out and Google. But in saying that, my door is always open, especially in these in these conversations. It would make me so happy to have one of my male friends or even somebody I don't know that very well say, hey, could we get a coffee? I'd just love to chat about this stuff. And I've had people come and do that to me. And I think that that's really, really important. For me, it's also great because it means I get out of the echo chambers that are my main circles and I can speak to people that have differing opinions. And I just think it's really important for us going forwards to have these spaces where when speaking about these conversations, there's obviously with a caveat of making sure it's respectful communication, but it's an open space where you can share and you can feel like you can grow together. I think for me, that is also complicated though, because I carry a lot of rage and I think I have a lot of resentment 
um, whether that's subconscious or not, towards men. And I know that that can be taken as quite a problematic thing. And I don't want to be labeled a man hater because that would completely ruin my reputation. But I think I do have a lot of resentment towards a lot of men, particularly men that don't engage in these conversations because I'm sort of thinking this is so important to me. And this has been on my, this is on my mind every single day. Something will happen every single day that brings this issue up for me. And particularly in, in my legal jobs and the like happens all the time, nuanced conversation. Somebody makes a comment about my appearance and they think that it's really, really lovely. And it's a compliment. And I'm standing there thinking, I wish you'd just compliment me on my work and the quality of my work. But yeah, enraging. Yeah, I think the point about, you know, uh, reaching out to people for education and things like that, like I completely agree with you. I think we're similar in the sense that both of us have found comfort and we find, you know, um, I guess, you know, a level of like moving things forward by being someone who is open and willing to have those sort of like educational conversations rather than, you know, not being open to that. And I think people really need to respect their own energy. Not everyone needs to be willing to educate people who should be better educated in and of themselves. But like, if you do feel like that's something you are comfortable doing or that you are drawn to doing, like be open about that fact because it's not, necessarily the standard and so it's good to you know be articulate about that to the people who you would be willing to have those conversations with and I think my message in a similar way to people who are seeking to become more educated in this space is it cannot <laughs> can't be a placid thing no you can't go to someone and say educate me and I'm just going to sit here and be a wet sponge like no 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 you need to be doing the work you need to be coming with specific questions and a curiosity and an, an inherent desire to understand and comprehend and a reflective piece on the fact that this is an emotional heavy thing for someone else to share with you and to talk you through and you need to be willing to take what they tell you and go away and process it and ask the extra questions yourself and not just rely on their their explanation or their educative tools to bring you up to speed like it has to be a personal journey because as well we're not perfect in the way we talk about this either I have have so much to learn so much to learn and I have biases that are you know inherent and biases that are um like that I show and ones that I'm probably not even aware of in myself and so like aren't ready to admit you have and it's really unfair to expect you know the things that we could say and could teach about and even everything we're talking about today it's not the full picture and I'm the first to admit that but that that's not going to stop me from talking about it because I just yeah, I have to, otherwise I would implode. But I just think that like, you know, when we talk about educating others, it's not come and sit in the classroom and just like take it in and walk away and expect to be a, you know, be an expert on or expect to be up to speed. Like it's a continually evolving process. It's allowed to be personal. You're allowed to disagree. You're allowed to have different views. And ultimately maybe you come to a completely different conclusion than the person who's trying to educate you and give you those resources but you need to be coming to a conclusion yourself. Absolutely. You can't just be taking what they tell you and seeing it as be all and all gospel. That's it. You don't have to think anymore. Like, and you know, people are like, Oh, it's so much work. So much effort. guess what? I don't get a choice about this. I don't get to not be educated about it. And this exists in so many spaces of, you know, oppression and of harm. You know, if you're the one experiencing it, you don't get to choose to not, I don't get to not think about this. My life, my life is this. I have spent hundreds 
thousands of dollars in therapy trying to deal with my personal experiences. I spend, yeah, hours every day where this crosses my mind and I think about it. And it's not just because I'm passionate about it. It's because it's my actual life. And, you know, this exists in so many other ways for different people. And it's so personal for everyone in every different way. But if you don't have to think about this, then you then you should be seeking out to think about this because that's the problem. That is so true. And I think that's been something that I was posting on my Instagram over the last few months is saying to people, if you're not having these conversations, you're the person I want to talk to. And not necessarily because I want to educate you on this issue. I want to know why you're not discussing it. Because as you said, if it doesn't affect you, then you need to be the one that is pioneering the change because you are in the privileged position where you can actually enact that change because all the people that do need to talk about are probably the ones that are feeling marginalized or are marginalized by the institution. And so it's your obligation as the person that's not personally affected by this to actually speak up. I think that was a really interesting thing, Thea, that I took away from the in conversation that you had with Justice Hain was he was very, very emphatic about uh, calling to arms all of the men in the room and saying that it's time for men to take a long internal look at their own behaviour. It's really, really important that men take a look at their own behaviour. And I think that was a really, a really impassioned point by him, I think. Can sort I tell of a, you a inside scoop? Yeah. That was my point. Oh, okay. That, Interesting. And, and when we had discussions, he, he he was very adamant about speaking to the men in the room and and encouraging the men in the room to do the work. But it was interesting because he had there was a spiel at one point in it, which I actually articulated and asked him to specifically say, because I knew that it wouldn't be listened to if I said it. And it was wow, when, that is such an interesting dynamic. And it was like I'm not undercutting his contribution as well because no. I I've gotten a lot of flack for that event, which I could that's a whole other episode that I will probably do at some point or another, how I was devalued in other people's perspectives and the critiques that they made of that event. But, you know, when we met, we were very clear as a duo that the intention was to speak not to survivors but to people who don't believe and to people who aren't in the conversation. That was why he was chosen to be part of that event. You know, the dean of the law school very intentionally chose him to be part of that event because she knew it would get people in the room. And whether you agree with that or not as a premise, that's not the point. The point was that that's how we reviewed the event. That's what we were aiming to get out of it. And he was very intentional about, you know, yeah, calling men to arms. But I think you'll remember that there was a whole section where he was asking people to look internally at themselves, recognise the privileges that they held in the spaces and to not just listen to, but to understand women and to take the time to speak to those around them. And that was my point. And I asked him to say it because I needed it to be said by a man in a position so of power credible. so that it was upheld in a better way. And it was very interesting because I had multiple people comment on that little section and it was literally word for word what I said to him in our meeting. And I was really and he really took it on and he added to it. But like at the end of the day, it was just a really very poignant, very strategic moment where I was like, I am sick of not being heard. Or if I am listened to, I am not understood. And I am not, my, my experiences are not comprehended. They're just like go in one ear and out the other. And I think that's something 
often when you're speaking to men is men are problem solvers. They're fixers. They want to fix whatever your problem is. So when you tell them something, sometimes they don't hear it. They just want to fix it. They want it to go away. They want the problem to go away. And with these issues, they can't just go away. They are there. And I want everybody to go back and listen to what Thea just said. She had to tell a powerful man to articulate her train of thought because to her, it was more credible if he said it and she did not feel as if she would be listened to if she said it herself. And I think that is such a pertinent summary of really what we're discussing today is we are dealing with a situation where we are stepping into a profession where we are already on the back foot. We're already on the back foot. And to reconcile with that is so, so, so difficult. And the only way that we're ever going to be able to step in on an equal footing is if we have these conversations and if people try and unlearn basic misogynistic behavior that is just permeating our entire society. The amount of times that I have been told to get back in the kitchen by friends as a joke. By ex-partners. By ex-partners. Like when you're in a supposedly loving, caring relationship and that's a valid comment that they think they can make. And it's it's framed in, in humour. Not always. And that and I think that's another actually another point is that I said right at the beginning of this the whole the difference between indirect and direct discrimination. And one of the reasons that this topic is so important to me is that probably about three years ago, and again, I'm not gonna go into what happened because it relates to a situation of employment and I'm worried that if I discuss it in too much detail that it's going to reflect really poorly on my professional reputation and that's another point I want everybody to take away from this conversation is how worried I'm I am to talk about my own experience because I'm worried it's going to reflect poorly on me but that was the first time that I ever felt direct discrimination where somebody looked me in the eye and told me that I was not as good as my male counterpart because I was a woman. Now, if that's not an inherent issue to me, I don't know what is. They literally told me that my sex put me on the back foot and that I was never going to be as successful as my male counterparts. No matter how intelligent I was, no matter how much I tried, I was never, ever going to be as good as them. Yeah. And it's everywhere and it's pervasive. And, you know, the thing is, it just, I don't know. I feel like we've, we've barely even touched the the surface. surface. And I feel like we're repeating things that people maybe already know, but it's hard to know sometimes because obviously, like we were talking about before, we exist in this space so much that like, I forget what the starting point is sometimes when you're not in the conversation all the time. And because we put a time limit on ourselves I'm going to sort of move towards like tailing out from this, but I want to say that this is probably going to be somewhat of a series within the Get Me Started podcast because it is just, it's probably my number one Get Me Started topic. Like, you know, I started this podcast on the basis of the conversations where you say, don't get me started. And I probably say, don't get me started about this six times a week, if not more. But what is, you know, obviously there's so much more we could say. There's so much we've tried to say and I, I want to like validate everything I've said by being like, it's not all of it. Don't judge me for not saying one point. Cause it's, you know, there's limits. Right. But if there's something 
else that you really felt like you wanted to say or raise today you know is there anything else that you sort of feel like you haven't had the opportunity to express at this point oh Thea so much (laughs) anything anything in particular or like what's at the forefront of your mind right now I just think I want people that are listening to understand that this is a form of an identity crisis for a lot of women and I think particularly in a professional setting I hope that I'm not saying that this, you know, one hour podcast is going to change people's lives, but I guess if there's one takeaway that I want listeners to draw from what we've been saying, it's just that this is a deeply, deeply impactful situation and social scenario that we're living in and be aware that it probably affects most, if not all women that are in your circles And please, please just try and remember that and try as hard as you can to unlearn any problematic behaviors. And I think we're going to get to this with this next question that I know you're going to ask me, but I think one thing that I always get really frustrated about in these conversations is that because there's so much to talk about, we often stop speaking about solutions. We start speaking about, you know, the substance of the issue, but finding solutions and actually working out how to solve it is sort of missed. I think another thing I want people to take away from it is I read this amazing, uh, it was uh, submissions to the Australian Human Rights Commission from the Law Council and it was speaking about how misconduct and inappropriate behaviour, it's really important to comprehend it from the perspective of the victim. So it has nothing to do with your intention. Even if you intend for your compliment to be perfectly delivered and just the most complimentary thing that the person you're saying it to has ever heard, if it's received with a level of uncomfortability, then that's enough for it to be problematic. So I just think that's a very, very simplistic version of um, that entire issue, but just try and remember that it doesn't really have anything to do with your intention. And particularly when it's framed in a social setting of humor or an office setting where you're at lunch or you're at a Christmas party or you're in the boardroom and you make a throwaway comment, even if you didn't intend it to be hurtful, if it hurt the other person, then that's still a problem. Yeah. I think my, my thing that I just, I was, I've said it before. I'll say it again every single time I have these conversations. Cause I just think it's so so freaking important believe people when they tell you that something that they have experienced was negative for them this does not mean that you have to take it to the ends of the earth it doesn't require you to condemn or pass judgment on the person who's perpetrated that hurt to the individual or insert yourself into the situation all you need to do is to listen and believe that that person was hurt that doesn't precede an evaluation of the situa- situation from all sides because sometimes there are shades of grey and people will have experienced the same situation in radically different ways. But guess what? It doesn't change the fact that one person is hurt by that situation and one person thought it was fine. They both still feel that. They both still have to live with that. And what happens beyond that in a reporting system or the courts or whatever isn't the point. If someone is coming to you and trusting you to say, hey, I have experienced this and it hurt me on some level, 
believe them that it did because in and of itself that brings a level of healing and comfort that goes beyond so much else and it provides a level of validation that doesn't have to mean that there is anything more that comes of it but there is no loss there is no detriment to believing that someone experienced something bad the power to the words i believe you is so immense yes when you hear that or when you say it, you can see in the other person and you can feel in yourself how validating it is to hear those words, that somebody actually believes what you're saying. And their first thought isn't to say, well, why didn't you report it? Or are you sure that's what happened? Hmm. I just think that's just, yeah. It's just something that I wish people did more of. Um, and I think it's inherently incredibly important. So the last point that we always end on on the podcast is what is something that people can go and do about this topic to get them started in their journey of understanding it? And what would you direct people to do, Claire? I think as a more practical and legal focused solution to this problem, um, if you are somebody that's in the legal industry or even in any workplace scenario, I got some really amazing advice from the uh, very high echelon legal professional I was talking about before recently that I didn't even realize I could do. If you've had a negative workplace experience, you can write a letter to the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, explaining your situation. And it can be entirely anonymous. You can put in details in your letter and then say that you want it to remain entirely anonymous. But she and the entire kind of human rights department in that division will actually use that evidence to inform um, resources and policy decisions and policy changes. And um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you, you might not be aware of it, but I would really suggest also reading the Respect at Work publication, which was published, I think, March 2020 last year I think that's a really important one because it just has so many statistics of workplace misconduct and it really explains and actually provides a lot of recommendations as to how we can unlearn and we can try and go away towards paving some sort of solution because the recommendations are tangible and I think particularly for men and men that are listening if you're wondering how you can change this and how you can be a problem solver go and read that report because I'm guessing most people even you're even if you're not in the legal profession you will be working and so read some of those recommendations and just remember that you're not alone you can always report these things, but you can report it in an anonymous way that's not reporting it to the police. Yeah, for sure. And I think maybe my activity is a little bit more, uh, you know, yeah, uh, less practical in the sense of what you can do, but maybe, you know, things you can delve into. So we've mentioned Bree Lee's book, Eggshell Skull. Uh, we also mentioned Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, which I think should be mandatory reading for anyone who's in any way involved in the legal system because she talks you through her personal experience as a survivor bringing a claim of sexual assault to court. She talks you through the moment of assault up until her moment of healing years after um, and everything, everything that happens in between. And as you know, someone who felt like I kind of understood what it would feel like to go through the system or knew some of the issues, I learnt an immense amount. She's a beautiful, beautiful writer and it's a wonderful book. It's probably one of the best books I've ever read. Um, because we've mentioned it a lot um, in this episode, I will also share the link to the video 
um, of the in conversation I had with Justice Kenneth Hayne and myself. It feels weird to like be like, oh, watch this thing. That no, I no, no. It's Shameless like, plug. It's like I love it. Footnoting me. Myself. <laughs> my brain. Um, but, you know, I think that it will give context to some of the things we've talked about here. And if you want, yeah, resources or you want suggestions of where to go, reach out to us, post it in the Facebook community group if you're a part of it. Um, and yeah, do the work. I have a heap of resources as well, more kind of tangible. You can go away and you can read them or listen to them as well. So we'll try and post as many resources as we can for people if they are interested. But otherwise, this was such an amazing, empowering conversation. And I just want to say I'm so honoured to be have been asked to come and speak to Thea about this. I think Thea is such an empowered and impassioned woman. And I'm so thankful to have her in my life because if it's one thing I've learnt, the only way to deal with these things is in a team and yeah. with an ally. And I really do feel like Thea is such a strong ally to me and an amazing role model to me as well. So thank you so much, Thea, for having me and keep doing what you're doing. You're absolutely killing it. Yeah, well, it's the same. The feeling is mutual, 100%. Um, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to this. If this has been a heavy conversation for you or something that's really struck a nerve for various reasons, the other activity that I would encourage you to do is take care of yourself. Reach out to the 1-800-RESPECT hotline if you need to. Reach out to Lifeline or Beyond Blue if that is affecting you in a personal way. If you have an experience of sexual harassment or sexual trauma in any form on any level, there is nothing too small to require help. Please, 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 I beg you to reach out to your support network and reach out to the services that are available because it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to heal. But there are things out there for you and there is hope and there is healing and love in that process as well. And safe spaces. And safe spaces. So take care of yourself. Take care of your friends. Check in with one another. Thank you all for listening and being a part of the podcast. If you aren't already, please join the Facebook group. So it's Get Me Started Podcast Community on Facebook. And we also have the Instagram at Get Me Started, which you would so appreciate if you follow. And if you've enjoyed this episode, let me know because I would like to do more around this topic and more in this kind of way of being this sort of like mutual solo guesty type episode. So yeah, give us some feedback. A lot of love to all of you and thank you again, Claire, for coming on. Anytime, Thea. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody.